You're listening to Deeply Curious, a podcast about our ever-evolving philosophy of life and faith and the curious pursuit of knowledge and wisdom. In this episode, we're going to be talking about women, girls, ladies, <laughs> card-carrying members of the Vagina Club, okay. holding tickets to the Pussy Riot, <laughs> Oh my God. <laughs> and sitting across from me what is, is a... Proven, tested, confirmed vagina holder, my wife, Sarah. Oh, my God. Hi. (laughs) I mean, that's it. We're going to be talking about women. Specifically, Sarah has been, her world has been rocked by this book that she's been reading, um, according to her Instagram, uh, Women Who Run With Wolves. What is rocking your world? Well, this book, Women Who Run With the Wolves, is written by Clarissa Pinkola Estes. Um, She's a Jungian psychologist and Cantadora is uh, what they're called in her um, tradition. She's a, it means keeper of the old stories. What does Jungian mean? Oh, Carl Jung, uh, psychologist, psychoanalyst. Most people would know him. Uh, he's mostly credited for coming up with the MBTI uh, Myers-Briggs typing type system and, and archetypes in general. That was like his whole life's work. Um, so this book specifically, she she is a trained Jungian psychologist, and um, this book, Women Who Run With the Wolves, is Myth and Stories of the Wild Woman Archetype. Every chapter is like a different myth or story, like Cinderella, only it's not called Cinderella, but that's where Cinderella comes from, this one particular legend. So she tells you the story and then explains like what it is in relation to like the life of a woman and or like the ugly duckling or there's I don't know like 15 chapters so there's a lot of different stories that she takes and then breaks down the wild woman archetype within the stories okay so so what what is the wild woman archetype she starts the book by talking about how the wild woman or the healthy woman uh, who is in touch with the wild, her wild side, right, has shares a lot of characteristics of wolves in legends and myths and stuff. And she says, like, healthy wolves and healthy women share certain psychic characteristics, keen sensing, playful spirit, and a heightened capacity for devotion. Wolves and women are relational by nature, inquiring, possessed of great endurance and strength. They are deeply intuitive, intensely concerned with their young, their mates, and their pack. They are experienced in adapting to constantly changing circumstances, and they are fiercely stalwart and very brave. So she goes, the whole beginning of the book is just talking about that, about how, like, the characteristics between femininity and wolves. So, but the wild woman is just that, is the the untamed. Like, in American culture, I mean, there's definitely the, like, oh, nice girl. Oh, keep your mouth shut. Oh, you know, like nobody wants my opinion, so I'm just not going to share. You cross your legs, wear a dress. You know, all of the all of the typical sit down and shut up kind of ideas about what a woman should be. And she talks about how that's not the true essence or the true nature of women. That's what the whole book is about. Mm-hmm. That true nature of women is that basically it's just the true nature of being human and we haven't allowed women to be human? Or is there something uniquely special about the wild woman opposed to the wild human? Mm, I don't know. I think that there's definitely 
there's definitely something uniquely special to the wild woman. Um, but every female is a wild woman, whether she is awake to it or not, mm-hmm. is, you know, sort of the idea. So what does a a woman living in America unaware of the wild woman core look like compared to somebody who's living free? Well, I mean, it honestly just depends on your your experience and like what you've been taught or told, what kind of household you grew up in, what kind of environment you grew up in, what kind, obviously culture. Mm -hmm. We can all sort of understand culturally the American expectation of women. Um, But then obviously it it breaks down even more so depending on if you were uh, raised in a religion or not, or raised in public school or private school or an artistic family or, you know, a free thinking family or a pretty rigid one or, you know, like there's so many different ways that the wild woman archetype can be silenced or snuffed out. Mm -hmm. And so that's basically every chapter is like a new way of how you have been, you know, silenced or whatever. Mm -hmm. Well, I guess because you can't answer for women, um, that's, right. so that's what you're telling, that's what I hear of what you just said. I, I can't yeah. answer that question because I'm only me. Right. So for you, what do, what have you looked like as a repressed woman versus mm-hmm. what you either look like now as a free woman or what you hope to look like as, you know, free woman? Um, well, there's a few chapters I've read recently that I feel like are probably more me than some of the others. Um, one of them is on the story of the ugly duckling, which is just the ugly duckling was born into the family of ducks, um, but he was ugly and didn't really know why he didn't fit in, was just like running around trying to fit in. His mom tried to love him, but couldn't because he caused too much strain on what she looked like to the village, you know. So he like ran away basically. And then long story short, finds out he wasn't a duck at all. He was a swan. And so the the point being like you just aren't where you're supposed to be. Like you just didn't find your people or whatever. I have always felt drawn to the Ugly Duckling story. I feel like I'm a little bit of a black sheep in the culture in which we grew up in. Mm-hmm. In your family of origin. Yeah, but even like on a smaller scale, if we want to talk about like women in culture Mm -hmm. that everyone can relate to, Mm -hmm. I feel like chapter seven that I read yesterday is just called Joyous Body, the Wild Flesh. So it's all about how we view our our physical bodies, which literally every woman on the planet can relate to. Like in, in this chapter, she starts off by saying, Yet, despite their beauty and ability to stay strong, wolves are sometimes talked about in this way. Ah, you are too hungry. Your teeth are too sharp. Your appetites too interested. Like wolves, women are sometimes discussed as though only a certain temperament, only a certain restrained appetite is acceptable. And too often added to that is an attribution of moral goodness or badness according to whether a woman's size, height, gait, and shape conform to a singular or exclusionary ideal, which is American culture and the way we treat female bodies, you know. We have forgotten that everything is connected, that our our body affects our soul and our soul affects our mind and our mind affects our body and so on. And I think Zadie Smith 
said something like, we don't feel like we are a body. We just have a body. And I think that that, right. that's Which it. Which is a totally new like Western ideal of, yeah. of, you know, life. Yeah. That for some, we feel like we're more of a brain on legs than a person. Yes, that's exactly it. I feel like we're very, very bad in mm-hmm. America on understanding that our body is like us, not a thing to scoff at or to uh, criticize or to chastise in front of the mirror. And so she's talking about that in this chapter. And she says, it makes utter sense to stay healthy and strong and to be as nourishing to the body as possible. Yet I would have to agree there is in many women a, quote, hungry one inside. But rather than hungry to be a certain size, shape, or height, rather than hungry to fit the stereotype, women are hungry for basic regard from the culture surrounding them. Mm -hmm. Which, that line, I was like, oh, my God. Yeah. (laughs) We're not, we have a pretty low bar. Like, we're only asking for basic regard, you know? But we can't even, well, for one, the culture refuses to give it to us, but we can't even give it to ourselves, you know, because culture won't let us. But I mean, we're all not only criticizing ourselves in the mirror every single day, but we are walking around criticizing other women. You know, whether we're conscious of it or not is another story. But because we're all just trying to fit into the culture, we're all just trying to like survive here, you know. We have our American culture, which has been influenced by you know, the the move to Western modernity. Mm-hmm. And we have these ideals of what happiness and humanity is. But right. at the same time, we've only really given that to men and specifically white men. Mm-hmm. What What are these cultural things that you see that this book brings out mm-hmm. that, that are just the cultural baggage left from a patriarchal society that we're still fighting against that are keeping the wild woman down? Well, what I find interesting, particularly about body shaming, basically, is um, how she talks about that keeping women, um, you know, anxious or obsessed with um, their body robs them of their creative life and their ability to pay attention to other things. And I mean, that's absolutely true. We only have so much thinking space. And if our thinking space is being dominated by, I don't think I should really eat this muffin. Should I eat this muffin? Mm -hmm. I really kind of want to eat this muffin, but I think maybe I'm just going to practice self-control and not eat the muffin, you know? I mean, that's like a constant battle. That's like a 10-minute conversation with yourself of whether or not you should put some calories in your mouth when you're getting ready in the morning and you're staring in the mirror the whole time, constantly going like, I should get my eyebrows done probably. Oh, I really should have done a face mask last night. I can't believe I was too lazy to not. When you put your jeans on, you're like, ugh, really should probably lose a couple pounds. You know, like constantly we're just like evaluating ourselves, which steals all of your energy. And and you believe that those things are not the natural disposition of women, that no. those are things that are culturally taught. Yes. We're definitely taught to hate ourselves as women in America. Like that's just the truth. Whether it's conscious or subconscious or overt or not, it's just constant. 
She says, where there is a wound on the psyches and bodies of women, there is a corresponding wound wound at the same site in the culture itself, and finally on nature herself. In a true holistic psychology, all worlds are understood as interdependent, not as separate entities. It is not amazing that in our culture there is an issue about carving up a woman's natural body, that there is a corresponding issue about carving up the landscape, and yet another about carving up the culture into fashionable parts as well. Although a woman may not be able to stop the dissection of culture and lands overnight, she can stop doing so to her own body. But like, that's it. Like we are doing ourselves a disservice by carving up our own bodies or by dissecting and wounding our own bodies, Mm -hmm. whether psychologically or physically. So you started that by saying that all of of that dissection is stealing all of the brain space for what truly matters. Yes. Um, How has that played out? Like, how do you have examples like for you? Like well, either anecdotal like examples or literally I have not been able to do these things because I'm constantly thinking about these things, etc. I don't know if I have like a literal examples, but definitely um, I feel the fatigue, the mental fatigue of, you know, not being happy with the way I look. I mean, there are some days that it's the only thing I think about, you know, which mm. is stupid. I mean, it shouldn't be the case, but it is. And just imagine what you could get done if that's not what you're thinking about. Right. You know what I mean? And not only that, but the thing that you're thinking about is so negative Mm -hmm. and negative to yourself that you're just shoving yourself down into, you know, some dark pit. Yeah. So those are all examples of what is consuming your mind. Yeah. And keeping you from thinking about what actually matters. Yeah. That may be the tactic of society without even knowing it is keeping women down. Yeah. I think it's a really even uh, a kind of comparison to consumerism. You know, they, they keep you distracted. Right. So that you're not. I mean, that's why. You know, we can talk about like coronavirus and, and when it hit and, and then obviously the killing of George Floyd and how everything has just become sort of exacerbated. Like this has always happened. You know, George Floyd's uh, murder isn't new. It's it's always been happening. It's just that none of us had anything else to pay attention to. Mm-hmm. And so we all were forced to sit in our house and see it for an extended period of time. Because we all, right? we, none because, of us had anything else to get to. Yeah, you were forced to notice. And and I feel like, like that, it's kind of the same thing. Like culture keeps us distracted so that we don't pay attention to what we should be. And I, I think it's the same like with women, like culture keeps us distracted so that we're not over here like, oh, wait a second. <laughs> this is wrong and this is wrong and this is wrong and this is wrong and oh i do want to do this and like taking charge of like who you are and what you love and what you think you were put on this earth to do you know Mm -hmm. like we're all so distracted and worried about things that truly don't matter right if i could figure out how to quit negative self-talk i would have like so much brain power I wouldn't need a nap at 3 p.m. every day. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I don't know. So what are some, what is another uh, myth? Well, like the one I'm reading right now, 
the myth is the red shoes, uh, which I had never heard the story before. But basically, it's like this girl who was poor and she didn't have any shoes. And then one day she handmade some red shoes and she was like really proud of them. And then this like old lady in a carriage came and and was like, oh, I'm going to take you in and take care of you. But she forced her to get rid of her old clothes and shoes because they were dirty because she's poor, you know. And so she basically forced her to be prim and proper, stay silent, you know, whatever. And then she took her shopping to get some new clothes and she snuck a pair of red shoes that were there because the old lady had poor eyesight. And so she snuck away a pair of red shoes and then started wearing them. And long story short, the red shoes were just like compulsively calling to her. And so she put them back on after the old lady took them away from her again. And then she started dancing, but then she couldn't stop dancing. The shoes were dancing for her, basically. And she couldn't stop moving. She was like tired and she couldn't even sleep, you know. So finally, she just had a person cut off her feet because she just needed to be rid of the red shoes. The moral of the story is that in the beginning, she was free and she was creative and she made her shoes. She made something with her hands that she was proud of. And then somebody came and tamed her and put her in a cage and made her be prim and proper. And so her soul started starving. And then once you're in a cage for so long, you just have to bust out any way you can, even if it's unhealthy. So she she got the red shoes and it was unhealthy. And um, and then it basically ended up like ruining her because she cut her feet off because of it. You know, that's kind of the idea. Mm-hmm. After every story, there's like, OK, well, here's this lesson. We can see it this way. Here's here's what the old lady stands for. Here's what, you know, she says, the vision a woman has for her own life can also be decimated in the flames of someone else's jealousy or someone's plain out destructiveness toward her. Family, mentors, teachers, and friends are not supposed to be destructive if and when they feel envy, but some decidedly are in both subtle and not so subtle ways. No woman can afford to let her creative life hang by a thread while she serves an antagonistic love relationship, parent, teacher, or friend. And so it's about how a lot of times women are sort of trapped, whether it's a relationship or culture or, you know, whatever it is, how you cannot hold that and your creativity, you know, to get, you can't, uh, can't afford to let her creative life hang by a thread, you know? So oftentimes a woman cuts the thread, like she lets go of her creative life because culture is telling her that she has to do this, right? And so once you cut that thread and you're trapped, that flow, that creativity is still happening. It's just you're burying it. And so eventually it's going to erupt, And when it erupts, it's not always pretty. And so like that's what she's talking about. And she says, it is play, not properness, that is the central artery, the core, the brainstem of creative life. The impulse to play is an instinct. No play, no creative life. Be good, no creative life. Sit still, no creative life. Speak, think, act only demurely, little creative juice. Any group, society, institution, or organization that encourages women to revile the eccentric, to be suspicious of the new and unusual, to avoid the fervent, the vital, or the innovative, to impersonalize the personal, is asking for a culture of dead women. 
And then uh, she talks about Janis Joplin, who is a blues singer during the 60s, is a good example of a feral woman, um, which is one who's been trapped. Um, Because she talks about how, you know, we use the term feral in regards to animals when they've been wild and then domesticated and then go back wild, Mm. which is a negative term and relates that to women who were wild and now have been tamed and are trying to get back out you know Mm -hmm. she says is a good example of a feral woman who was instinct injured by spirit crushing forces her creative life innocent curiosity love of life somewhat irreverent approach to the world during her growing up years were mercilessly vilified by her teachers and many of those who surrounded her in the good girl white southern baptist community of her time um and it talks about how like she was an a student a talented painter you know creative person etc Um, But she was chastised by her community and friends. Uh, Says when she finally escaped to the world of the blues, she was so starved she could no longer tell when enough was enough. And like that's the the risk, Mm. I guess, of the wild woman who has been caged is Mm -hmm. that you lose your instinct injury is what she calls it. But you lose your instinct to know when enough is enough because you don't know the next time you're going to get to to be wild you know Mm. so like you kind of find a little bit of an escape and you go crazy because you don't know the next time you're going to have the freedom um she uh talks about that through wildlife studies of various species of captive animals it was found that no matter how lovingly their zoo plazas are constructed no matter how much their human keepers love them as indeed they do the creatures often become unable to breed their appetites for food and rest become skewed, their vital behaviors dwindle to lethargy, sullenness, or untoward aggressiveness. Zoologists call this behavior in captives animal depression. Anytime a creature is caged, its natural cycles of sleep, mate selection, estrus grooming, parenting, and so forth deteriorate. As the natural cycles are lost, emptiness follows. The emptiness is not full, like the Buddhist concept of sacred void, but rather empty like being inside a sealed box with no windows. So too, when a woman enters the household of the dry old woman, the carriage that she gets into, she experiences lack of resolve, miasma, NUI, simple depressions, and sudden anxiety states that are similar to the symptoms animals display when they have been stunned by capture and trauma. And I thought that was a really interesting analogy or metaphor, whatever it is. Uh, I thought of blackfish and the whales who are in captivity, regardless of how much the trainers love them, their dorsal fins fall over every time because mm-hmm. they're caged. It doesn't matter how nice the cage is. Right. Like, like the stat is 100% of whales in captivity have a floppy dorsal fin. Yes. And 0% of whales in freedom. The wild do. Do. Yeah. And I thought that was a really good uh, picture of like what I feel like it feels to be a woman in this culture. Um, obviously, I understand that there are other cultures where women have it worse. I'm not pretending like that's not true, you know, but like that's what it feels like. It feels like like your dorsal fin is just like flopped over. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I see a lot of you in that story. It's uh-huh. obviously why you connect to it. Uh-huh. I think that I can I can easily see a wild woman. Mm-hmm. Then I can see the cage, mm-hmm. and now I can see the feral. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that it is, uh, from the outside perspective, it is very clear that you are in that feral stage trying to figure out where when, what is enough. Right. So what I would love is to, one, just to know more of Sarah, and then two, to give an anecdotal experience to what does that even look like? Like that is a beautiful story and maybe we can relate to it, but in practical matters, what did it look like for you? And I think the first question would be, what did the artist Sarah look like prior to being caged? I mean, I just played a lot. I I don't really, I don't have like a lot of childhood memory. So I can't, I just don't have a lot of like concrete examples, you know, but like, I know that I wrote stories all the time. I know that I um, played outside constantly. I, I read, obviously, I've always been reading. I played piano for 10 years. I, I was writing music even, like I had gotten to the point where I was writing music. I played all kinds of sports. I was a cheerleader. I was in band. I was on the uh, worship team at church. I like I I was just I did all kinds of things. So at that stage in your life, Mm -hmm. if somebody said, um, are you creative? What do you think you would say? I probably would have said yes. Or, I mean, or I, would you have would you have uh, fought against somebody saying, "Wow, you're so creative"? No, I wouldn't have fought against it. It's hard for me to like think back now because I spent so long saying I wasn't. So, like, it's hard for me to be in my twelve year old brain. <laughs> right, right. So, <laughs> but I wouldn't have said that I'm not. I mean, I've I thought that I was artistically inclined. I was I was naturally good at things, and you know, just kind of did what I enjoyed doing, which were always artistic things Mm -hmm. plus sports. Right. So you just alluded to you spent so long saying that you weren't creative, Mm -hmm. even though you obviously started out that way of everything Mm -hmm. you did was a form of creativity and an expression of who you are as a wild woman artist. Mm -hmm. At some point that changed. Yes. Did it change gradually? Did it change instantly? Um, or, you know, or somewhere right in between there? And what did what was that for you? I mean, I think it changed fairly quickly. Uh, I can pinpoint when it changed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I feel like that means fairly quickly. I mean, I was like 12 or 13 mm-hmm. when it changed. And I just have like a few very specific instances of people saying things to me or that I I took as truth you know, which weren't, but I didn't know that because I was 12 or 13. Mm -hmm. Some of it was probably Mm self-consciousness. I feel like I was never very self-conscious growing up. But even, you know, I I say that, but I played sports all through high school and I was never self-conscious about being in front of people. So I don't think I quit piano because I was self-conscious. I think it was that there were very specific instances where people said things that are just seared in my brain, you know, and I believed them. And there are specific instances when I was criticized, but worse than criticized. I don't know the word for asking a question. Are any of those able to be, uh, I guess, shared in general sense? Like, of so to say what, what it was? Well, I was definitely like, I had a lot of questions, uh, 
particularly in faith, there was like a lot of things that never felt right to me. And that's the thing is like, I'm a very, I just like operate off of intuition. I don't like, I, I just do. And I'm comfortable doing that. And I feel very comfortable in knowing what is right and what is wrong by feeling it, I guess, you know, like I just know what to do. And there were just certain things within faith, within the faith that we grew up in that didn't sit right with me. And I didn't, again, I was like 13, so I didn't know how to say it. I just knew that it wasn't right. And I was shut down immediately for asking a question and told, oh, you're going to hell if you think that, or, oh, you can't ask that, or that's a sin, or, you know, whatever. And even that, I was like, well, I don't want to be a part of a religion that Mm-hmm. that makes me go to hell because I asked a question. Like, mm-hmm. that's not right. Like You're ashamed for thinking. I was very shamed for, for thinking and for asking questions. Well, you probably <laughs> should have held those, cap- those thoughts captive and then you want to be where you are now. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I quit piano because of a comment that was made that uh, wasn't made to me, but was made in front of me that made me feel like I wasn't good at it or you know whatever which i just i'm not going to share specifically because it involves other people Mm -hmm. in that regard so you don't want to share very like specifically because it through deduction it could be figured out who said what so just what is prior to that there you didn't believe certain things but whenever you were caged you came to believe lies that were said to you So what are some things you didn't believe that you ended up believing about yourself, even though they were clearly not true? That I'm like a terrible person or like a monster, whatever you want to say, for sure. Well, for one, I was literally told uh, some things about how terrible of a person I am, but also like just the when you have questions, when you're curious and you're constantly reprimanded for that and and told that it's wrong then i mean you start to really think that you're wrong you know and like psychologically you can't really help that you know especially when you're 13 14 whatever and you have like people your age and people who are actual adults who are saying these things to you like what else am i supposed to believe Mm -hmm. it's like my entire environment everyone who i was surrounded with was like Oh, you're wrong for doing this. No, you're wrong for doing this, though. But also, I, you know, if I tried to correct it because I didn't want to make anybody mad, like I was wrong for for doing it the way I did it or, you know, like there was just constant you're wrong. Mm -hmm. And so I thought I was wrong. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's it. Okay, so that was the transition from being a free woman Mm -hmm. into a caged woman Mm -hmm. and the cage seemed to have been shut or dropped upon you almost instantaneously. Yeah. Um, it's, it is a more gradual process within a few years, but it, it definitely, yeah, but it definitely, you have an, you have an inciting event. Yes. That you went from innocently yourself to questioning yourself to questioning everything Mm -hmm. about you and how you operate within the world and your your purpose in the world. Yes. And you went from somebody who thought she was going to be an artist. Right. To somebody who th- knew, mm-hmm. I mean, I'm going to be a banker or fi- in finance. Yeah. 
and pursued that. Mm -hmm. The first job after we were married, you worked at a bank. Yeah. And then you worked in banking Mm -hmm. for seven Seven years. And after seven years, you ended up being basically at your rock bottom Mm -hmm. where in that period, just like the story, you had a a thread that had been cut and you were on a new path. Mm -hmm. And every rung of that ladder that you climbed made you realize more and more and more how far away you were getting from who you truly are. And there may no be no return that you have made decisions that are leading you a certain place. Mm -hmm. And one, the career decision, obviously, but it was exacerbated. And I will say it for you. So you don't have to say it to me. Um, that also being married at such a young age Mm -hmm. in a culture that told you and me Mm -hmm. the role of which you were supposed to play in our marriage wasn't a further entrapment of who you actually are. Yes. Because it felt as though not that you didn't want to be married or you didn't want to you know, be with me. Mm-hmm. It was that you didn't want to fit into this archetype of what a wife was supposed to be to well, me. I don't fit. Right. You don't want, you don't fit that naturally. You just yeah. naturally do not fit it. Mm-hmm. You can't be molded into that person without it having detrimental effects to who you are. Right. I put those expectations on you because that's what I thought was supposed to happen. Right. So I was a major contributor mm-hmm. to your caging Mm -hmm. and after seven years of that it was i am done Mm -hmm. there's no way i can continue living let alone living like this yeah and so you quit that job what was that release i I mean i don't know that i guess there was like some sort of release because i clearly am better off not being in a at a bank (laughs) it's comical to me now (laughs) Mm-hmm. When I think about it, but like, I don't know. I mean, I still don't know what I'm doing. You know what I mean? Like, I still am just sort of like uh, scrambling. <laughs> it's been five years since I quit. And I I mean, I still feel caged, I guess, if we're using the, the terms from the book. I mean, obviously, I understand the effect that a job has on a person and how you can't help it like it just does like if you're spending hours at least half or more than half of your week in a place it's going to affect you like you know you can't pretend like it's not and so I have always been with that in mind very cautious of any sort of job I take on now like I learned that just because I'm good at something doesn't mean is I should do it. You know, like I I was good at banking. I was but I mean she even talks about that in the book that like a woman can't have that life, particularly if she's a creative person, unless she has found a way to supplement outside of her job. But if if you don't have an opportunity to supplement that outside of your job, then you cannot hold that kind of job. And that I mean, that was my experience because I I couldn't figure out how to supplement it outside of my job because I was also expected to be a certain kind of wife from you and from culture and, you know, from what everybody was telling me. We were on staff at a church, which takes 
extra energy than just a regular job. And so like I never had the ability to figure it out. I never had the space or the freedom to figure it out. So I definitely was just like dying slowly. (laughs) Mm -hmm. One anecdotal thing is Sarah is the most well-read woman that I and many people who know her know. Mm -hmm. But in that seven-year period went from being a, an avid reader mm-hmm. and to basically not reading. Yeah, I didn't read for a long time. It wasn't that you didn't have the desire. It's right. that it was not valued in your house or your community. Yeah. Well, and again, you have to going back to like how much brain power right. thinking about all of this stuff takes and like what you could actually accomplish if you didn't think about you know, and so I was like incredibly depressed and anxious and thinking about how wrong I was or how wrong I felt or how wrong everything else was. You know, like I was just so caught up in thinking about it because I mean, I couldn't help it. You know, it was mm-hmm. like, that's what depression, anxiety are. Um, I couldn't focus on anything else. Yeah. So, like, it took all of my brain power away from being able to. I mean, I read like. I guess what I would now consider shallow things like, you know, young adult, not that I love young adult. I'm not criticizing, but like, it's just not as in depth as like the poetry and stuff that I read now because it's what I could handle at the time. It's the only thing my brain could do was that I couldn't focus on anything that I actually wanted to accomplish. Mm-hmm. So after you quit, mm-hmm. um, you started your process of becoming free. Yes. The quitting the job was not the answer. Right. But it was a a rope that was being cut. Yes. The 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 thread It was my first step toward taking ownership of me. Yeah. So since then, as you've been moving towards freedom mm-hmm. and becoming more and more feral, is uh-huh. uh that said. You have regained your sense of an artist. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, if somebody asked you, are you an artist? I would still struggle to say yes, but (laughs) eventually I would say yes. (laughs) I would say, well, yeah, I mean, I'm trying to, you know, I I think I want to do this. Like, I I still have a lot of insecurity. Insecurity. If you are not insecure. Yeah. And somebody said. Yes. Are you an artist? Yes. Your answer is yes. Yes. The woman who started out with a deep love of reading mm-hmm. is back mm-hmm. where reading is one of the like only things that matter to you. Yeah. So that is back. Your love of music mm-hmm. has done nothing but increased over the last five years mm-hmm. to the point where you have bought a piano. Right. And are beginning the process of becoming a piano player again. Beginning the process of convincing myself to play piano again. (laughs) Right. Yes. The reason I say that is to point out that if society wasn't so bleeped up, Sarah wouldn't have had a 12 to 15 year period Mm -hmm. of losing herself and could have maintained being that the reading artist, piano playing, exuberant woman she was, Skipped all of the expletive <laughs> that she had to go through, yeah, to just go back to doing that. 
Like yeah. all the years wasted because society lied, because society told her that you need to be quiet. You mm -hmm. need to fall into line. You need to not ask questions. You need to be the woman that society says that you should be instead of being the human that God has designed you to be. Mm -hmm. That is the reason we're having this conversation because that is, I will say at this time, bullshit. <laughs> We are holding our women back by making them fall into a box that we have designed for them to, to fit nicely onto a man's bookshelf mm -hmm. instead of to be the wild and free human beings that they are. Mm -hmm. And I don't have an answer how to fix it other than individual change. Yeah, individual change. It obviously takes women taking ownership it takes i mean like you have to she talks about it in this book like it it will come with you have to sacrifice things you know as a woman to be able to be who you are and one of those things will be your need to be liked which i i still struggle with i mean i think it also takes obviously men because they are half of the culture mm -hmm. <laughs> or half of the population and all and of 100 the, of the problem <laughs> um, it takes them not only like, you know, saying that they support women, but like actually supporting women and not just like in a professional kind of sense, but in like a personal kind of sense. Like if you are a man and you say you support women, you should just be able to see it. Like I shouldn't have to still fight to be heard when it's, you know, mostly men at the table or like, there, you know what I'm Mm -hmm. mean or like if you're a man and you're with a woman you should you know defer to her like you should turn to her and ask her her opinion like let her speak i see it so often about like there are so many men who i think are good men like they're good people they have good hearts and they're still not aware of of the tiniest little inflections mm -hmm. of their voice or the tiniest little you know like it all matters yeah so within that uh, from the male perspective uh -huh. i see you as my equal my partner in life right but there was something that i wasn't seeing yeah that was there and i and so i asked you what is something that as an american man just because of the, my cultural upbringing mm -hmm. and etc cetera, etc cetera, that i still perpetuate unknowingly yeah obviously it can only speak to american culture but i think um pretty much every american man <laughs> is this way you know like i said good men with good hearts still have something about them that i think needs to be fixed and we were talking about it and i said that i gave you the example i said you know like in our relationship like if we're making a decision and I vote one way and you vote the other, you believe you hold the swing vote. Mm -hmm. And and that, I mean, I think that's true. Like as a man, like you just be honest with yourself for a second and say, if it was a 50-50 tie, what what is the tiebreaker? Mm -hmm. Who defers? You believe that the woman would defer. I mean, that is common very, very common. Right. It's like I had made it to 51%. Yeah, exactly. It's like I, I'm all for it. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I've made it. I've made it all. To me, it seemed like I was all the way there. Yeah. I made it to 51%. Yeah. But I still had a natural me bias. The me bias told me that 
ultimately, I do hold the swing vote. Like yeah. in this relationship, I, mean, I think most men do believe that. Yeah, I, mean, I don't think they would be aware. It's a perversion. Aware. It's a perversion of of my you know our culture upbringing of that right. the man is the head of the household. And there, you know, there is beauty in that archetype, but that archetype doesn't mean that you have the swing vote. Right. It means you lead your family in love. Right. Like that's it. Like it's not that you lead your family as the person who makes all decisions. Right. You don't run your family. Right. You lead your family. And to lead is to do by example, is to lead them through love by love. Mm-hmm. And if you were doing that as a Christian man, the idea of the swing vote wouldn't even be there because you would right. be deferring to them so much that they would say, maybe you should do what you sh- you want to do this time. Yes. I'm definitely not there, by the way. <laughs> I would love if that was if I was saying that and being like, this is me. No, (laughs) no, definitely not. Half the time the conversation is, well, why should we do what you say? What about what I want to do? Right. (laughs) It's me sounding selfish. (laughs) But I I think, yeah, I think if more men just ask themselves that question, just that, like, just get brutally honest with yourself and just say, like, if the vote was if it was split 50-50, who do I believe would win? You believe you would win. I don't believe I would win. Most women don't believe they would win. Even if they think they're right, even if it is right, you know, whatever the situation is. But Mm -hmm. like, I ultimately know if you were, you know, being- The worst version of myself. (laughs) Strong-willed. ultimately no i know that i couldn't win Mm -hmm. and i mean i think all women know what that feels like so like as a man just be honest with yourself and say that you believe you hold the swing vote and then change it yeah the swing vote is one of the things that hit me the most of of to constantly remind myself of that and i have told that to all of my male friends and um, my male friends are like, yo, bro, you can, I'm glad you came up with that. Um, <laughs> and, and you're like, thank you. Me too. <laughs> uh, the, the point is that most men that have been told that phrasing to have all co- slightly cocked their head, eyeballs a little bit towards the sky thinking, yeah, I think I do. <laughs> yeah. See? Boys should listen to girls more often. We're pretty smart, you know? Um, so that was kind of the point of this podcast for us to listen to girls more often and um, actually see, hear, and know the experiences that are caused by societal pressures. Yeah, um, sorry if I rambled. Women Who Run With Wolves is the book we were talking about. Yes, um, Clarissa Pinkola Estes is her name. And Sarah cannot recommend it enough. It's destroying me. Which is a good thing. So Sarah, she still feels that she is uh, caged currently mm-hmm. and is on her way to becoming a wild woman. And I personally am excited to see that uh, be uncaged. And You say that now. Well, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> Might come out to bite me. You never know. Or we'll end the podcast there. Thank you guys for listening to Deeply Curious. If you're interested in hearing more of my voice for some reason, I started a, another podcast 
with my friend and mentor and pastor, Matt Nelson. It is in partnership with City Church Tulsa. It's called Reflections on Now, where him and I sit down and talk about cultural moments through the gospel lens of love. So it is a podcast more well, not more. It is specifically geared towards the Christian perspective of cultural moments. If you would like to check that out, you can just um, search for Reflections on Now on any podcasting app. There will also be a link in the show notes. Thank you guys for listening, and we'll see you in the next episode. Bye.